Um, we have kind of a light crowd this morning, and I suspect that has to do with uh, a lot of people thinking it's cold outside. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, it's good to see everybody who's here. I do know we have a couple of visitors, and we're glad you're here. And um, we want to welcome you to come back at every opportunity you have. But glad everybody's out, glad everybody's well. And for those of our number, as Ed mentioned, that are not well, we'll continue to pray for them and trust that the Lord will be with them. Welcome to everybody. And this morning we're going to go back and continue to talk about, as uh, was said earlier, we're going to continue to talk about our theme. And in particular, we are looking at some attempts, historical attempts, to be more holy. And so I'm going to continue to do that this morning. And uh, as we back away from it for a moment, and as we think about just where we are, I was thinking about a passage as I was sitting there a moment ago in James chapter 4. One of the songs that Ani Eddy had led made me think of this passage and the idea of drawing close to God. As God says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. You come close to me, I'll come close to you. But typically when we think about God, many people, when they think about their relationship with God, as we've said, they see God as high and lifted up, like Isaiah said in chapter 6. But we think of ourselves down here. And that there is a great gap, as it were, between us and God. That even though God would say, draw near to me, we're not as close to God as we want to be. Our relationship is not as close as we would like it to be, or as we know God wants it to be. God is saying to us in our theme verse, 1 Peter chapter 1. In fact, go ahead and turn there. I'm going to look at that passage a little bit more here in just a second. But God says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And yet, as I've put up here several times and will throughout this quarter, this question, how do even the best really reach God? We're never going to be perhaps as close as we want to be until we're in heaven with God. Our relationship is never going to be everything we want it to be. I hope that's the way you feel. You know, happy Valentine's Day to everybody. And if you have a relationship and you're thinking about a relationship with some other person, if that's the case, and and even if it's not a sweetheart, so to speak, but it's a parent, a child, or whomever it might be, I mean, really and truly, is it as close as you ever want it to be? Or, if you really love this person, would you want it to be even closer and even closer? I think most of us feel that way. And yet, when we're thinking about God, we, again, we, we think about this great gap between us. How do I bridge this gap between God and me? I feel distant from God. I hear that from a lot of people, uh, have over the years, from time to time, someone that otherwise might appear to be faithful, will come to me and say such a thing. I feel far away from God. I feel distant from God. How do I get closer? I know that I am a saint. We emphasized that last week. From the day I'm baptized, I am sanctified in Jesus Christ. So I am a saint. I am a holy individual. But I want to be more holy. I understand what holiness is. Uh, Anietti, the last song that he led is perfect. Take time to be holy. I think we all understand that. It takes time. It takes effort if I'm going to bridge this gap, if I'm going to get closer to God. I want to be more holy. But we've talked about the fact that the process to being more holy is a journey whereby we bridge the gap 
albeit in a process. I get closer and closer to God as it were. As I, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, bridge the gap by perfecting my personal holiness. Go back with me to James, not to James, to 1 Peter chapter 1. And notice this passage. Start with me in verse 13. If you've been here on Sunday evenings, you know I've emphasized this passage. Gird up the loins of your mind. In many respects, tighten the belt in your mind, so to speak. Bind it up. But gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Uh, Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children and not fashioning yourselves, as it were, according to the former lust and your ignorance. Don't, as a Christian, don't always be refashioning, reliving, redressing yourself in the life you had before. Always be progressing as it were, perfecting your personal holiness. And I think that's the idea. As he which has called you holy, you be holy in all manner of conversation, in all ways of life, because as it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You'll notice in verse 17, I won't read it, but he speaks of a sojourning, a journey toward doing that. Now, we are coming up to the mountain of God. I'm going to get into, in the next several sermons, I will get into this passage in Isaiah and I will talk more and more about the idea of meeting God on the mountain. But again, we're talking about the idea of be holy or I am holy and we are talking about attempts, notable attempts that people have made to do just that. I want to be more holy. What do I do to accomplish that? To start the process, to... You know, fulfill the process. How do I get closer to God? Well, the Pharisees tried to do that. And as they separated themselves from, as we talked about last week, from the effects of those who had conquered them and the, you know, the influence that they were having over the people at large, they began to separate. But we saw there were dangers with that. And certainly in the New Testament, we can see the abuses of separating to be more holy but then the effect it has on you as you look at other people. We also talked about the Amish. And we're very familiar with the Amish in this part of the country, and down in North Alabama we are as well. The Amish are a people who really take to heart the idea of come out from among them and be ye separate. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17. But then there is the problem of that elitist attitude where I don't want anything to do with people in the world whatsoever. And that's not what Christ taught us. This morning we're going to look at the Wesleys. From time to time, if you'll notice who writes the songs in our books, you will see that, oh, some, what, maybe 20 songs or so in our book are written by John, mostly by Charles Wesley. And there are, in fact, a lot of songs that Christians have sung over the years written by the Wesleys And I want to talk a little bit about the Wesleys and their so-called Holy Club. And we're going to take a look at that this morning. And then next week, uh, or the week after, Wes will preach next week. And then I want to come back in a couple of weeks and I want to talk about our brethren. So we'll talk about the Crossroads, Boston Church, International Churches of Christ, and all of that. But I'm going to save that for another lesson. Again, there have been notable attempts by people to be more holy And in each case, the goal, and I I really want to focus on this for a second. 
The goal was to restore a personal. Now notice, we're not talking about church so much here. We're talking about a personal, holy relationship with God. I know some of you, even right now, are putting forth a considerable amount of effort, and you have been for a while. I mean, starting when we were talking all during the man in the mirror, and I know some of you came to me and said, you know, there's some points here I really need to add to my life, and I'm going to really make some effort. And I know you have been, and that's great. And when we're talking about these attempts, we're talking about that kind of thing. People that made notable attempts to come up to God's standard of holiness, to restore that personal, holy relationship with God. But as we've been noting, the natural and usually realized danger in all of that is, first of all, legalism. If I think these are good rules for me, then I probably begin to think they're good rules for everybody. And when they become laws, well, then we've stepped over a line we weren't supposed to step over. When it becomes ritualized, and and I believe in all of these attempts in the beginning, it was not an attempt to be ritualized. It was an attempt for me to have a personal relationship with God, separate and apart even from that formalized gathering like we had this morning. A daily uh, process of being closer to God. But it became ritualized. And it breeds a separatist attitude. What do I mean by that? I, I don't want to be like everybody else. I want to be separate from everybody else. It breeds an elitist disposition. What I mean by that? It's where I've, I'm separate But now I think I'm better. Now I think everybody around me is really worse than I am, not as good as I am, certainly not as holy as I am, and I'm above that. And there is that attitude within me that is growing that I and the group of people perhaps who are with me, that we have achieved and the rest of the world has not, and perhaps even as we'll look at some of our own brethren, the rest of our brethren have not. And so it breeds a real elitist disposition, and we don't want that to happen. Let's go back, though, and ask this question. What's to be gained by looking at such attempts, whether they're successful or not, of other groups? Should we even consider what other people do? Especially, you know, a person might say, and, and a couple have asked me about it, Why do we talk about the Pharisees or the Amish or this morning? Why will you talk about the Wesleys? I mean, they're not even brethren. Well, that's true. But as we consider this, we ought to remember, for example, Paul was a Pharisee. And when Paul spoke of being a Pharisee, Paul did not speak of being a Pharisee like the condemnation Jesus would give in Matthew 23 of scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. No, Paul would make the point in a number of passages by inspiration. They're recorded for us. In Acts 26 and verses 4 and 5, as he told Agrippa, I was raised in the straightest, strictest sect, we would say, among our people. And everybody knows it. And as he addressed the Jews, and he would say to them, and one of the things that stands out to me is when he says to his own brethren, you know how I lived. And I have lived in all good conscience until this day. 
And there's a point there, and of course we might look at that and say, wait a minute, Paul, how can you say that? Because we know that it came to a point that your conscience was wounded about killing Stephen, for example. That's true, when he learned better. But while he was doing those things, he lived such a life where what he believed was right to do, he did it with all zeal. And that's right. You have to learn the truth. And you have to obey the truth. But the point is, God wants us to be zealous like that. We might even go on and look at Jesus. You know, Jesus marked the good in other people. Jesus, regardless of their background, pointed out what others were doing and said, you go and do likewise. I'll give you a couple of examples. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 10, remember the centurion with his servant? And how he said to Jesus, you don't need to come, just command it, it'll be done. Wow, what faith. And Jesus pointed it out. The woman, the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7 or Matthew 15 and verse 28. Oh, what faith. Your faith has made you whole. Or how Jesus pointed out about Pharisees. Scribe comes up to him and says, love your neighbor as yourself. Who's my neighbor? Jesus said, let me tell you a story about a priest and a Levite who would pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan who would actually roll up his sleeves and get his hands dirty doing for somebody else. You tell me who the neighbor is. Or how he said in Luke 17 and verse 11, there were ten lepers and they cried out for healing and they were healed. I healed them. And one turned back and said, thank you, and that was a Samaritan. You see, Jesus marked the good in other people. And Jesus, just like he told the scribe in Luke 10, you go and do what they do. Not necessarily everything. Jesus wasn't saying, shut the Jewish religion for the Samaritan religion. But he was saying, when you see a Samaritan doing what he's supposed to be doing, don't go do it. And that's why we look at notable attempts of other people. I want to talk about the Wesleys this morning. Can I get some help? Several of you guys, there's some sheets that I've got up here on the bench beside Montel, and I'd like for you just to pass this sheet out uh, to anybody here that wants one, and uh, everything kind of divide those up between a few people. What you're going to see here is something the Wesleys developed. Let me talk about the Wesleys for a moment. While they were students at Oxford, Christ Church at Oxford in England in 1729, John and Charles Wesley and several of their friends devoted themselves to a rigorous attempt, and I emphasize rigorous there, a rigorous attempt at personal holiness and service to other people. Now their group came to be called, mockingly came to be called by their fellow students, the Holy Club. You should understand that at Oxford at that time, and it was like a seminary training preachers, okay? And at Oxford, the spirituality among the students was really low. They were in the Anglican Church. We call it the Episcopal Church here in this country mostly. But they were in the Anglican Church, and what had happened is perhaps through the influence of, you know, the history of the Anglican Church, whatever, the spirituality was really low. So it's not surprising that this group, as they tried to be holy, as they tried to restore a personal holiness to their lives, would get such a negative reaction. They were considered to be religious fanatics. Now, as you continue to look at this, and this sheet that I'm passing out has to do with something they developed, and I'm going to talk about it in a second. 
They tried to systematically serve God each hour of the day, and you'll notice, and the sheet you have in your hand represents this, and live their lives under strict review, daily. Okay. Their great emphasis was in the study of the Bible, and notably, they set aside time each week to pray, to fast, to take communion, and devotedly give of their means. Now, we would look at all that and say, yeah, well, they went to church. Well, you should understand that these seminary students, most of them were very lax in even these things. For example, the average seminary student took communion maybe two, three, four times a year. These, this group of guys said, no, every single week. They gave of their means, and I mean devotedly. I don't really have time to get into that, but you should understand that several of them committed their lives to living on a certain salary, and as their salary increased year after year after year, they gave everything down to their first year salary. Just think about that for us for a little bit. They met daily to discuss the Greek New Testament, to recount their day going over this list of questions, to recount their day with each other and plan for the next day. Now look at that list. Now I want you to take it home and just, you know, meditate on it a little bit. This is a real list by a real group of guys, and it may be 300 years old or 400 years old. You know what, 300 years old. It may be 300 years old, but look at the list. Look at the challenge that this list brings to their lives. Have you done this? Do you feel this way? Do you think that way? And I'll tell you, I've read through this list several times over the last six, seven weeks, and it's very convicting. It is to me personally. I hope it will be to you. But they emphasized these things. They took time weekly to visit prisoners and the sick, to take food to the poor, to spend time with orphans, to teach Poor children who otherwise would not have the chance to learn to read, for example, because they emphasize Bible study, and obviously you can't study the Bible if you can't read. Because of all of this daily ritualistic, if you want to call it that, but I'd rather look at it as a rigorous attempt to be holy, some took to calling them Methodist. And in fact, Charles Wesley embraced that term. This was a little ditty that came from that time. Some of their fellow students were going around saying this. By rule they eat. By rule they drink. By rule do all things but think. Method alone must guide them all when themselves Methodists they call. Charles Wesley said, yeah, Methodist. One that lives according to the method laid down in the Bible. Because all of these things, I mean, as we look at that list, as we look at it, all these things they were doing, as you look at the list that you have perhaps in your hands, what would we find wrong with it? Going to church each week, making that a priority, to pray and sing and take communion and give of our means and study the Bible. And so what would we find wrong with that? All of these daily activities of meeting together, even the idea of meeting together and with a few people to say, how did your day go? And being accountable to that and knowing you have to be accountable to that and pledging to be honest in that. Did you foul up today? What did you do? What did you think about? You know, men, we've been talking about downstairs, that hard section of Matthew. You know, did you, did you have a problem with lust today? Did you have a problem with your tongue today? 
I mean, they were going over those kinds of things every day. And when we look at that, and we listen to what John Wesley said, the first priority of my life is to be holy. What would I find wrong with that? And I'll tell you, me personally, of all the attempts in history, ever since, and when I was in seminary myself, I had never heard of this. And when we started talking about this, I'm thinking, man, oh man. This was a special group of young people. A very special group. But there are dangers, aren't there? And as you look at history, and you look at what happened as these men moved beyond college, the seminary, the idealistic attempt they were making, the devotion they were giving. I'm not going to explore each individual one of them in their personal lives, but as you move beyond that and then the people they taught, as Wes and I are trying to do this year, as various ones in classes are trying to do, where we're saying we need to be more holy. As you begin to do all of that and you realize that people really need to be more holy. Perhaps you get into some of what you see in their history. Self-imposed rules. Self-imposed methods for achieving and even reviewing. Like this sheet you have in your hand. Your personal holiness. They're good. That's what the whole man in the mirror was about. Setting goals for yourself. Ways to achieve those goals. When I revisit them in some of the lessons that I'm going to do, that's what it will be, but it will all be self-imposed. It's up to you. You can walk out of here. You can take that piece of paper, for example, in your hand, or the things I'm saying, or anyone else says, and you can trash them as you walk out the door. Or you can go home and say, I need to be more holy. I want to be closer to God. And these kinds of things, you, it's up to you. You look at the list. Maybe you've got other questions you'd like to add to the list or some you'd like to take out. That's all fine because it's self-imposed. And it's good if you do that and it's helpful if you do that. And maybe it's even necessary if you do that as long as, number one, it doesn't breed that separatist or elitist attitude. Because once you become more holy is your first inclination, look at the list, you will even see questions that address this, is your first inclination to look at your brother or sister in Christ and say, I'm holy and you ain't. Is that where I am? Because if it is, I need to go back. That wasn't the point. But it's what happened. And when others didn't subscribe, those who did became real separatist in looking at themselves. We are Methodist. And you are not. And you need to be. And secondly, as long as they remain good suggestions, and I want you to understand, and I hope everybody understands, I hope the sheet makes it clear, that Michael White is not introducing by any stretch of the imagination the bylaws of East Orange Church of Christ this morning for your ratification. They're suggestions. They're old suggestions from a group of people long since dead and gone. Good suggestions for a personal commitment to be more holy are just that. 
And they're never to be formalized or codified as, as written down in a creed, like a creed, like the Methodist confession that came after their lives, after they were dead and gone. And of course, then imposed on others. If you want to be part of our group, then what you need to do is you need to subscribe to what once were good suggestions that several guys got together and said, hey, it'd be good if we asked ourselves and honestly answered these questions every day and then to somehow put that into a code or a creed where now you're saying, if you want to be part of us, here's what you've got to do. And that's a great difference. And that's what happened. And of course, eventually... Those methods were formalized. It resulted in the Methodist Church, something that I'm convinced John and Charles Wesley never wanted, if you go back and look at history. But the denomination continues to evolve and unfortunately continues to digress from the emphasis of its roots. I'll close with this one quick story and then I'll be done. When I was in seminary and taking Bible classes, I took a situation ethics class, and I decided that I wanted to take a situation ethics, if you know what that is, of course, you know, finding a good ethic for doing whatever it is you think you have to do at the time. I wanted to take it from a liberal school and a liberal teacher, not a, basically not somebody that thought like I did. And where I went, where I had to go to get the most liberal teacher who would tell me, the laws of God can be sacrificed depending on the situation. It was a Methodist school. That's where they had come in the days since John and Charles Wesley. And that's what can happen. We'll talk more about some things that have happened within our own brotherhood in the next lesson. And you may find that interesting. But if you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and this morning, you're willing to confess your belief in Him, to repent, to change your life over the course of your life, and you're willing to be baptized, to have your sins washed away, you will be a saint of God. Now, maybe you're here and you look at your life and you say, you know what, I've been baptized, but my life needs to be more holy. I, I need to be more of what God wants me to be. And I'd like to change things starting this morning. I'd like to ask you to pray together with me to be able to do that. Won't you please come? Follow. Adios.